Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. Now, for those who wonder why we would start this series about wrestling down the carbon problem with the topic of cook stoves, here's a little known fact. More than half the world's population, or about three billion people, cooks with open fires or rudimentary stoves. So let me repeat that. That's three billion people. To tell you and show you what this means for the planet's carbon balance and how this lab is part of the solution, we have three speakers today, Ashok Gadgo, Acting Director of the Environmental Energy Technologies Division, and two staff scientists from the same division, Adam Rausch and Keija Booker. Please hold your questions until the end. Ashok, you're in the ring. Thank you. So welcome. Uh, so we are going to talk about cookstoves for fighting CO2. And I want to start off by saying, what do the poorer 5 billion people on the planet want? Because that is what is going to drive carbon emissions from the poorer 5 billion people. The top 1.5 billion people, the richest ones, which live in the industrial countries, we are, of course, the top uh, users per capita in terms of our emissions and have a history of large emissions. And the, 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 I guess the poorest in the sense, but still a big chunk of people. What do they want? So the United Nations got everybody together to try to understand what is it that drives development? What are, the, what are the developmental goals for these people? And they came up with a metric, something called Human Development Index. It's a quantitative index. And it has many, many components, but essentially three uh, large categories. One is economic well-being, prosperity, and that includes stuff like how many people are below poverty line, as well as what's per capita GDP. Life expectancy, public health, and health care includes things like how many people have primary health care, what's the number of hospital beds per 100,000 people, how many doctors, how many nurses, and so on per, per population. And then literacy and education, because that is also seen as a higher level goal beyond existence uh, or beyond mere existence of reaching a, a highly fulfilling life is to be able to, to be literate, to, be, to, to go to school, to understand complex phenomena and how, they, how the world works. These three things are put together. The HDI values are published by the United Nations every year. The, the range is from zero to one, and this is what the world looks like under HDI. Uh, this is the highest, and these are the about 1.2 billion people, uh, Japan, Australia, Western Europe, United States, Canada. Uh, and that's the rest of the world, okay? Uh, so it gives you a flavor of what's going on. This is, the surprising thing is, of course, there is an energy connection with HDI, which is why I'm starting from there, because that is what is going to drive CO2 emissions, and that's, what's, that's why cookstoves become important. HDI is very closely tied to consumption of modern energy, as the next graph shows. This is simply showing you the Human Development Index, going all the way from zero to one. And this is showing you electricity consumption, or a metric again for, for consumption of modern energy, kilowatt hours per person per year. And uh, US is up there, Canada is up there, Kuwait is up there, Norway is out there, because they have a lot of hydroelectricity. But United States and Canada top the world in terms of just general conventional energy, not extreme example of lots of hydro, 
uh, U.S. uses about 12,000, 13,000 uh, kilowatt hours per person per year. Western Europe and Japan, here is France, Netherlands, Italy, United Kingdom, Germany, Israel, Republic of Korea, are clustered around there at about 7,500. And that's where California is too, by the way. California is also 7,500 kilowatt hours per person per year. And then you start dropping off. And then HDI goes down and down and down to 0.3 for Niger, about 0.6 for India. Uh, here is Brazil, here is Mexico. And all of these countries are, of course, trying to move up. But we don't know how to go to high HDI without also moving towards the right on this curve. Okay, and that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem. Here is CO2 emissions of selected countries. Uh, these are CO2 emissions per capita, tons of CO2, okay? Uh, USA is up here. We want to bring it down to, to the global average of five to stabilize CO2 concentrations, and we are up at about 22, okay? So this is where we need to come down. Other European countries, as you saw from the previous graph, are already halfway down. The two enormous population giants, India and China, are crouching in a corner with more than a billion people each. And they all want to get to be like Australia and, and the United States. And the, the, the real incomes are rising for sure. It's a fact. The question is, what's going to be the trajectory of these enormous populations as they try to get to be like this? So effectively, the choice is, do they take that trajectory and then hopefully come down? Or do we figure out a way to, to have a low-carbon development path for these countries, something that these countries haven't experienced? Historically, there is no evidence uh, of having done so. So there is no path for them to emulate. Currently, they are, of course, trying to struggle up, to go up like Korea and Germany. So here's another way to look at it. This is the population distribution of the planet. You can see the most densely populated parts of the world are here, over there, uh, some pockets there, and of course over here, right? The next slide is the world at night, a composite satellite photograph taken at night over the, over the planet in absence of clouds. And effectively, you are getting a world map of global electricity consumption. This is the electric light that leaks out to the sky observed from satellites. And you see dark patches where there were population hotspots. But now you see electricity hotspots. You see Japan really brightly lit up. You see the eastern seaboard of the United States and Western Europe. And you overlay these two maps and you begin to see what's going to happen potentially when the rest of the world wants to light up like us. This is the overlay. Okay? You see all these patches which are still dark. You see this is pretty dark even now. This is lit up decently. This is lit up enormously, and so is Japan, right? So we have a ways to go when the developing countries will struggle to catch up with us. But the question is, are they going to catch up with us in the same trajectory that we took? If they did, or if they do, then we are all in trouble, them and, them and us, as the planetary carbon budget goes out of control, okay? Their perspective is that the atmosphere is a global commons, but there is very little headroom left for more CO2 to be emitted. And most of the CO2, most of the anthropogenic CO2 that is out there in the atmosphere currently uh, is actually attributed to the industrial revolution in the Western uh, economies, in the industrial economies. 
So they do need to improve their livelihoods, and they didn't put most of the greenhouse gases that are up there now in terms of the anthropogenic accumulation of CO2. So their question is, what about us? And where we go from here is just an illustrative answer in terms of fuel-efficient cookstoves for the poorest 2 billion on the planet. I assume that, that the remaining 1 billion are either using Chinese stoves using coal, not firewood, or already using some kind of efficient stoves. But this number is poorly defined between 2 and 3 billion. I took a conservative number here. So something like 2 billion, between 2 and 3 billion people use solid fuels mostly with stoves of really low efficiency. This is a daily grind uh, of going out there in the field and actually foraging for fuel wood, something people do every other day. And most of them cook on simple three stone fires, which is what this woman is doing. Uh, literally three stones, pot resting on the three stones, space under the stones is where, a uh, space under the pot is where you light your wood or sticks or uh, mud stoves, homemade mud stoves of low efficiency. So this is one single slide I'm going to show about why we should worry about it beyond what's going to be good for them. Good for them, of course, is uh, reducing uh, indoor smoke, reducing respiratory problems that come from inhalation of indoor smoke. That's the largest, second largest environmental uh, cause of mortality. Uh, among human populations, killing about a million people uh, earlier than they otherwise would from inhalation uh, exposure to biomass smoke. But uh, cook stoves also emit black soot. Uh, here is a, here are, in New York Times, uh, here is a report from the recent paper by Ramanathan and Carmichael uh, in Nature uh, showing what would happen if we only removed uh, black carbon from cooking with wood, crop, or dung. And if we were to remove that, you see suddenly concentration of uh, black carbon in the atmosphere disappears. Black carbon in the atmosphere is a, is a potent greenhouse agent because it directly absorbs sunlight uh, as the sunlight comes through the atmosphere. It, of course, also settles on snow and then causes glaciers to melt rapidly, and that part is not shown here. But just black soot aloft in the atmosphere is a potent greenhouse agent, and because its lifetime in the atmosphere is only about four weeks, as opposed to CO2 molecules whose lifetime in the atmosphere is 100 years, impact on the atmosphere is immediate if you are able to get rid of black soot from, from whatever source. So my group and I started working on fuel-efficient stoves back in 2005 in response to the humanitarian crisis in Darfur, and that's a separate story. Uh, effectively, there the goal was not so much to, to, to reduce CO2 emissions as to reduce the trips by the women and girls out into the field to collect fuel wood uh, because that's where they were being attacked by Janjaweed and, and mutilated and raped. So our goal was to get them to go out only once a week rather than uh, every other day. So the Berkeley Darfur stove costs $25 delivered in the hands of the refugee women with training, saves $250 per year in fuel wood costs. And this cost is monetized because they end up having to buy fuel wood by selling part of their food rations to middlemen. So they, what they end up doing is sell food rations to the middlemen, go hungry, or part of the food rations. With that cash, buy fuel wood from other middlemen, and with that wood, 
cook remainder of their fuel, uh, remainder of their food rations, because the United Nations gives them food rations, raw food rations, but not fuel good. So there you can see what the savings are compared to the cost, and this is per year, it lasts for five years. It also offsets about two tons of CO2 equivalent per year. And the stove is here, uh, we'll talk about it later. So in 2008, a couple of years ago, World Vision, which is one of the largest non-profits in the world, approached us to modify the Berkeley Darfur stove, saying, hey, Ethiopia, right next to Sudan, cooks on, on, in many similar ways with respect to uh, the style of cooking, they thought. The forest cover is catastrophically lost. It's gone from 35% in the last century down to now 3%. More than 80% of the people still depend on fuel wood for cooking. So in, in many ways, their back is to the wall. Uh, and the question from World Vision was, can you guys at LBL, since you, you seem to have successfully developed a stove for Darfur, could you help out Ethiopia? Uh, because this is, looks like an impending catastrophe in terms of where this is heading. This is what a countryside looks like in Ethiopia. Note that this field strewn with rocks is not for agriculture. There are lots of fields like that, just strewn with rocks, because the, there used to be trees here. Everything is gone. And, and this, this land is useless for anything uh, unless you clear it. It's not even being cleared. It's just denuded, you know, you just drive through the countryside, and it is pretty amazing to see what you get up saying. So last year, we visited Ethiopia, went into the countryside, documented what they cook, how they cook, what pots they use, uh, what's the cooking protocol. Here is a woman cooking, cooking on what in Ethiopia is the standard equivalent of a three-stone fire. The photograph you saw earlier of the woman cooking on a three-stone fire, she literally had three stones. In Ethiopia, we found that they actually use three clay pillars. These are pillars made out of baked clay, and on those three clay pillars, they support this pot, but effect is the same. In fact, there's even more open space for radiation to leave. There's even more open, open space to lose heat. Uh, so the, 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 the three clay pillars is equivalent to a, a three-stone fire. So we went there, we, we, we observed, measured a whole bunch of things, and brought back parts to Berkeley, saying if you're going to modify a stove, uh, we need to make sure that this stove will work with the pots they use. Okay, and now on to Adam uh, in terms of what we did for modifying the stoves and how it went. One of our principal tenets for the group has been to seek to understand and respond to the needs specific to each individual group of people we're working with. For example, these two photos look very similar. On the left, we have a Darfari woman cooking a meal. On the right, an Ethiopian woman doing the same. But it's important to note that these are different foods being prepared with different cooking methods, in different pots, with different stir sticks. Note that the Ethiopian woman is cooking indoors, and the Sudanese woman is outside. The stir stick being used by the Darfari woman is over twice as long. And that may seem trivial, but when the Darfur women are cooking a sita, one of their primary staples, they stand above the pot and stir so rigorously that the Darfur stove 
required holes so it could be staked into the ground. These sort of differences, when added up, mean that the women in each location have different needs. That we are willing and even enthusiastic about engaging these needs individually is one of the principal reasons World Vision Ethiopia was so interested in working with us. If we're going to provide for these needs, we have to come with a solution that's technically and culturally viable. Technical compatibility means that our stove works with their pots. It means it reduces emissions and improves efficiency when used with their cooking methods. On the left, we can see a woman holding a pot that's far too large for our stove. This is an example of a technical incompatibility, but thankfully that pot's only used for holiday cooking. On the right, you see a Yushang stove. This is another stove that's used in Ethiopia, and this is an example of a cultural issue. The stove has a metal skirt which sits on top of the stove, directs heat into the pot, and makes the whole system substantially more energy efficient. Unfortunately, this is a very rare picture because it shows both the stove and the skirt together. Most of the time, what we saw was the skirt would be placed off in some corner, if it could be found at all. The people said that the skirt was difficult to use, and the advantages that it offered weren't readily apparent to the users. Without the stove, or without the skirt, the stove proved substantially less efficient. So any CO2 savings that they were expecting to see were literally going out the window. So the bottom line is, if there's something about your product that they're not, they don't like, if there's something about our stove that they don't like, they're not going to use it. And if our stove sits idle in a corner, we're not doing anything to reduce the CO2. So based on what we'd learned about their cooking methods and the pots brought back, we designed three prototypes. The Darfur stove was made to accommodate these round bottom pots here. And the principal design change was making stoves that would accommodate flat bottom pots, like these that we bought back from a marketplace in Addis Ababa. The pots are supported by iron rods, which can be seen as the red lines in each of these diagrams. There were also slight changes to the collar, which is the uppermost part of the stove there, and to the firebox, which can be seen in blue. In January, a colleague and I went to Yaya Gulele in Ethiopia, we brought these stoves into the households, showed them to the women there, invited them to cook on one of the prototypes, and solicited their feedback. This is what we learned. Lesson one. In this area, the women make coffee several times a day. They roast the beans, grind them up, and brew the coffee all in a single sitting. What we discovered, however, is that the roasting trays vary in size. And for those roasting trays that can actually fit down inside the stove, it's trivial to set them inside. It's trivial to pour beans on the top. But it's extremely difficult to remove the tray full of beans once it's hot without either risking injury from burns or spilling the beans into the fire. Lesson two. The pot situation was not as simple as in Darfur. There, virtually everyone had the same two round-bottom pots. The households in Ethiopia, however, are relatively wealthy. They may have four, five, or six pots each. 
And while we did see pots like these, like the ones we saw in Addis Ababa, we also saw a substantially wider variety of pots. One of the surprises was that they actually used some round-bottom pots as well, as well as round-bottom coffee kettles like this. When these were placed on the parallel rods in design A, they proved unstable. When women would stir the round-bottom pots, they would rock back and forth, and the, tea, uh, the coffee kettles would tip over even without stirring. Basically, design A was out. The largest cultural compatibility concerned dealing with the ash. The largest cultural compatibility issue, I might say, concerned the ash. The Darfur design let the ash and charred embers fall through the grate onto the ground below. Since the Darfuri women cooked outdoors, this wasn't much of an issue. But the Ethiopian women, women cook in their homes. Still, given that these huts have bare earth floors, the ash and embers had never been much of a consideration for us. We didn't understand how important it was for them to keep that floor tidy until one of the women told our translator, it burned my house. So that was our wake-up call. That night, in the hotel, I built a makeshift pan to catch the ash for our subsequent trials. And we've absolutely included ash pans in the subsequent designs. You can actually see this is, this is ash that's come down and fallen out after a meal. And up here, this is the makeshift ash pan in the background. We also had a few cases where women reported cook times that took even longer than when they were cooking with open fires. This is a bit of a surprise for us, but generally they fell into two categories. First, when the pots were substantially smaller than the firebox of our stove. So this is one of those tea kettles. See this firebox is that interior wall there. Second case was when the pot fit snugly into the stove. For the first case, we theorized that a lot of the hot gas simply gets to escape out the top without ever interacting with the pot. So we're losing efficiency there. In the second case, we think the pot all but seals off the airflow, and so the hot gases are forced to escape through the mouth of the stove where the firewood's coming in. Again, we've updated our designs to take into account. Going forward, we've created a design which uses four angled pot rods so it can support a wide range of flat-bottomed and round-bottomed pots without rocking or tilting. You can see the large triangular ash pan. It's actually underneath in both images here. V-shaped tabs, it's here, there, and there, which keep a large pan or pot from sealing off the stove completely. And we've also included a coffee roasting tray, which is large enough that it sits on top of the stove rather than inside it. And it's supported by these tabs here. So once we had a pilot design, we began testing the stoves for efficiency. There are several different efficiency standards that can be used. They range from general to very situation specific based on two key trade-offs. A water boiling test measures fuel required to boil a standard volume of water twice, and then to simmer it for 45 minutes. It's very general, and hence universally comparable for all stoves, 
but it doesn't aim to replicate any local cooking practices. In contrast, a controlled cooking test measures the fuel required to perform a specific cooking task. And that cooking task is designed for the culture, for the region, to mimic the local cooking practices. The downside is that you can't compare a controlled cooking test from Darfur to Ethiopia to Mexico to Haiti. The second trade-off involves test location and separates the kitchen performance test, which is done by local cooks in their kitchens, from the other two tests, which are done by researchers in lab settings. So the kitchen performance test offers perhaps the most reliable way to assess the possible impact of an intervention in a given region. But it's expensive, it's time-consuming, it's less controlled. There's a bunch of other variables that come into play because you're not in a lab setting anymore. You don't have control over everything. So as of May, we've completed the first of these, the water boiling test for the Ethiopia design. I'm going to share a few of the results that start to show the basic trend with our stove compared with both open fires and other stoves being used in Ethiopia. From left to right, we have Berkeley Ethiopia stove. This is our guy here. This is an EnviroFit stove. Um, this is the Yusheng, tested with the skirt fully in place. This is the Tikikil, which is created locally in Ethiopia. And at the far right, we have an open fire, the three-stone or three-column fire. First off, all of the stoves have substantially better efficiencies than the three-stone fire, which is what we expect. These numbers here are very low compared with everything else, which is basically in the 20% range. Our stove, however, also proved slightly more efficient in the boiling phase. That's here compared with these numbers. And substantially more efficient in the simmering phase. The downside is that our time to boil was longer than any of the other options. So in a nutshell, our stove is slower but more efficient. The other side of testing stove is the emissions. Shown here is our laboratory setup for and apparatus for doing open burns. Um, the fire is tended in this, under this metal box here to the right. Gases flow up through this duct, are mixed, sampled, and then sent to various instruments. With this setup, we've taken measurements for the Darfur stove, and we've taken measurements for open fires, testing CO and CO2 emissions, testing black carbon and particulate levels. And such testing will be a crucial step for the Ethiopia program, because it's what will allow us to quantify both our greenhouse impact in general and our CO2 reductions in particular. With that, I'm going to turn it over to Kajan. In the interest of transparency, I feel that I should be honest and let you all know that I'm not actually a staff scientist, although I'm honored to be called one. I'm actually a graduate student at UC Berkeley. And I'm going to talk a little bit, so is Adam, by the way. I'm outing him. Um, <laughs> I'm going to start by talking about the, well, my piece of the talk will be talking a little bit more about the connection between carbon cook stoves and climate change. So when we think about carbon, one way to think about it is that it exists in several different pools in the oceans and soils, vegetation, and the atmosphere. 
And it's constantly moving between all of these different pools through various mechanisms. What we're concerned about in climate change, obviously, is when these transfers become unequal and imbalanced, specifically when we're emitting more to the atmosphere than we are absorbing in these terrestrial pools. So this first picture is a mature forest. There's no human use. Um, It's emitting carbon dioxide to the atmosphere through decay and respiration, but it's also absorbing carbon dioxide through photosynthesis. Um, And in this system, it's pretty balanced. Actually, a lot of mature forests are absorbing more carbon dioxide than they're emitting, but in general, this is a balanced system. Now we add in human use. So there's humans pulling some wood out of this fire for their three sto- out of the forest for their three stone fire. But as you can see by the arrows, it's still pretty much balanced. Um, the use on the forest is low enough that the emissions from the fires fires are recaptured by the growth in the forest. And a lot of what's being pulled out of the forest to burn were things that would be decaying anyway, twigs and branches and things that have fallen on the ground. So this system is still considered to be in balance. In carbon policy speak, they call this a renewable biomass situation. So if we were to replace this fire with one of our cook stoves, we wouldn't actually get credit for a carbon dioxide emission reduction because this emission is not considered to be contributing to climate change because the system is in balance. Now, it should be clear that there are the other emissions that both Adam and Ashok talked about. So replacing this with a a Berkeley Darfur stove or an Ethiopian cook stove would still have climate benefits because we would be reducing carbon monoxide, methane, black carbon, but you don't get any credit as far as carbon dioxide is concerned. So a lot of the efforts for carbon and cook stoves are focused on this third situation. And in this situation, you can see that human use in this forest is very high. We've reduced the size of the forest, so there's less trees to absorb carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, meaning that the sink is weaker, and we're also emitting far more than we're absorbing. So these red arrows represent an actual net increase in atmospheric concentration of carbon dioxide. And so, if we replace these three stone fires with cook stoves, we reduce this contribution to global warming, and so we're actually having an impact on global warming with these cook stoves by using less wood, decreasing emissions, and we actually earn a carbon credit for those reductions. So how much are we talking about here? Each stove reduces about two tons of carbon dioxide per year, or avoids the emission of two tons of carbon dioxide per year. To put that in context, an average U.S. passenger car emits about five tons of carbon dioxide per year. So two and a half stoves disseminated in Ethiopia offsets about one car in the U.S. per year. Or you can think about it as each American emits about 20 tons of carbon dioxide per year. So 10 stoves. Would, emit, would offset the emissions of, of your average American. But we're not talking about five stoves or ten stoves. We're talking about hundreds of thousands of stoves. So when you get up to those large scales, you actually come to see a really significant Im- impact. So we're talking about 40,000 cars off the road, emissions of 10,000 Americans offset by this project in Ethiopia. So what is a carbon credit? How do we come up with these numbers? Uh, Adam talked a little bit about this with the work that we do in the lab. So you start out by measuring emissions in absence of the project. So what are the emissions from the three stone fires? And we do some of this in the lab, and some of that's, as Adam talked about, in the field with these kitchen performance tests. You actually go into a sample of households, you watch them cook, and you measure all of the wood that they're using and use that to calculate emissions. 
And then you take that same sample of households, replace that with a cook stove, and then measure the emissions over the same period of time. The difference in emissions is the avoided carbon, which is how you earn the carbon credit. It's that carbon that you're saving. So one carbon credit equals one metric ton of carbon dioxide. As we've talked about a little bit, our stove saves about two tons of carbon dioxide, or two carbon credits per year. And it's important here that one carbon credit is one metric ton of carbon dioxide because these carbon credits are transferable. So the idea is that a ton of carbon dioxide saved or emitted anywhere in the world, whether it's Africa, Asia, the United States, has the same impact on global warming. And this is important in part because while the impact of each carbon credit is the same, the costs to produce it vary widely. So this is a famous graph, um, the McKinsey curve. I'm not sure how well you can read it in the back, but it shows the cost of saving a ton of carbon dioxide uh, in various ways. So it goes all the way from actually saving you quite a bit of money to costing over $50 per ton. So if the impact is the same, but the costs are different, then you get to the idea that maybe people for whom it's expensive to reduce should be paying people for whom it's cheap to reduce to make those reductions instead. It's more efficient if we attack those cheaper options first. So this is a hypothetical example in which we have a company A, which emits five tons of carbon dioxide per year. B emits 10, so the total for this sector is 15. For A, it only costs $25 to reduce a ton of carbon dioxide output. For B, it costs $50. So if we as a society decide we want to reduce the total output by two tons, we have multiple options for how to do this. One would be to tell A and B you each have to cut a ton. Total cost for that, $75. $25 for A, $50 for B. The output goes down to 13 the other way to do this is to allow trading. So if you allow trading, then A can reduce both tons because it's so much cheaper. The total is the same. It goes down two, but B doesn't reduce at all. Of course, A is not doing this out of the goodness of their heart. B is going to pay A to make this reduction. They're going to pay them something more than $25, something less than $50. And this is kind of the situation that we're in right now with our cook stoves because we can reduce our emissions or the emissions from these three stone fires more cheaply than a lot of factories or industries in Europe can reduce their own emissions. So they're willing to pay us to reduce emissions in Ethiopia. And they do this by buying the carbon credits that we're producing. One thing that's really exciting about this from a cook stove or a technology perspective is that, as Ashok talked about, these cook stoves are a technology that's valuable for all kinds of reasons. Uh, and carbon credits allow us to pay for them in a whole new way. So, as he said, a, a typical cook stove for our project costs about $25. Obviously, that's too much for your typical family in Ethiopia. They don't have $25 to buy a cook stove. And so, typically, that stove cost would have been subsidized by raising money through grants or donations or something along those lines. Uh, and that's how we've been doing it for decades, actually. But... Carbon credits give you another option. So there is a cost associated with applying for these carbon credits. Um, the application process is expensive. You have to do monitoring and verification to show that you're reducing what you say that you're reducing. So it comes out to about $35 per stove. But 
If we reduce two tons of carbon dioxide per year and get two carbon credits per year, each of those carbon credits sells for $16 on the European market right now. That's like this week's, this week's price. So that's $32 per year that we could earn through carbon credits, which leaves consumers in Ethiopia only having to pay $3. That is affordable to a family in Ethiopia. So carbon credits give us this option to produce these technologies that are useful for all kinds of ways and pay for them in a way that allows them to be affordable to consumers. And that's just in the first year. So these stoves generate these carbon credits over their lifetime. If they pay themselves off in the first year, these next four years are all profit. So that's over $100 that each stove is generating in profit per year. And who that profit goes to depends very much on how the project is structured. There's investors in Europe that pay for the project up front. They get a cut of that. Often the community gets a cut of that. Some of that goes back to do other sorts of development work in those communities. And our hope is that as these things go on, that more of that money will come back to places like the lab or to organizations that are developing other energy-efficient technologies for the poor. So now I'll turn it back over to Ashok. So I just want to end with... uh a slide that summarizes what you have done so far, so we have lots of time for questions. Okay. So current status. You heard already that the stove has tested well in the lab using the international water boiling test. So we use the water boiling test here. Uh, World Vision Ethiopia used the same identical protocol in Ethiopia and tested the other stoves, but they are comparable because the protocols are standardized across countries. And the Berkeley Ethiopia stove seems to be equal to or better than other stoves uh, by World Vision Ethiopia regarding the efficiency. It is lower powered slightly, but it takes, therefore, a little longer to boil the water. Uh, We finished building 20 of these stoves in Mumbai, flown them uh, to Addis Ababa uh, just a few days ago to World Vision Ethiopia so that they could field test them with rural women cooks with real food, with real pots and so on. So we'll start getting some feedback from these women cooks in terms of how that is accepted. The, the long-term vision of World Vision Ethiopia is to work with LBL to get to maybe 100, eventually get to 100,000 stoves per year dissemination cycle paid, paid with carbon credits. So that's, that's where they are going. Our role, of course, is focused on the science and engineering and monitoring and verification assistance. And lastly, regarding the Berkeley Darfur stoves, uh, we had set back a little while ago the, the nonprofit on the ground, which we were working with, called CHF International, was expelled uh, by the government of Sudan uh, back in early 2009. Uh, but we set up an assembly plant now in Darfur to build stoves uh, in Darfur by Darfuri refugees whom we trained. We also sent all our equipment there to build stoves there. Uh, Steel plate flat kits are made in Mumbai, shipped to Port Sudan. So 3,000 of the birthday Darfur stoves have been built in Darfur since October 2009, and they're all distributed. 6,000 flat kits are ready in Mumbai to be shipped uh, to Port Sudan on the way to Darfur. That should happen in about a month's time. And we hope that we will be able to keep up a uh, shipping rate of about, or distribution rate of about 10,000 stoves uh, per year uh, in Darfur 
based on what we receive in donations, there is a non-profit uh, tax-exempt website there if you go into darfurstoves.org. And, and that we hope to accelerate uh, further as this project catches on. And now at least we seem to have a way in which uh, is inexpensive and mostly reliant on local people in Darfur to build the stoves and use them. With that, I would like to stop and uh, please come up. Uh, we'll be happy to take questions. Okay, if you have a question, please raise your hand. Right. Uh, just showing off the Berkeley Darfur stove, which many of you have seen, is not very big, it's not very heavy either. <laughs> and then you already saw the pots and pans. Uh, these are the ones we bought uh, in Ethiopia, and um, there's a coffee kettle and so on. But questions? Okay, question. Yes, please, Rich. Uh, yes. Uh, you, you mentioned a little bit about the monitoring and verification over here. Uh, have you seen any evidence, either in your stove or in other stoves, of the equivalent of, say, a rebound effect in electricity consumption, whereas now that some of these people are using more efficient and, and better stoves, that they might be using them more and more? We haven't seen uh, a rebound effect, which is uh, what you're referring to is commonly seen when you, when you put insulation in a house, people raise the thermostat up in winter, for example. We haven't seen that. Uh, haven't been doing that level of high accuracy monitoring in Darfur, nothing at all. In fact, when we do this in Ethiopia, we'll actually measure actual savings in fieldwork. So then, then we'll have some, some handle on this. Let's see where it goes. Yes. Hi, my name is Kabus Mazari. My question is not really related to the technology part of it. Is uh, my understanding is that uh, the project is uh, is it helping more the industrial country or the poor countries? If it's uh, helping the industrial countries, then it seems to me that uh, uh, are we actually considering the the cultural aspect of that or not? Are we trying to introducing some kind of a high tech to their uh, culture? Are we initiating some kind of a change that might happen in long run, and are we studying the consequences of that? Okay. Uh, the project, I think, if we are successful, we will help presumably not just the developing countries, but everybody on the planet in terms of a better, a lower rate of CO2 emissions. Uh, the immediate effects, the local effects are all in the developing world for the bottom two billion people who are uh, exposed to smoke from biomass and who suffer respiratory problems, not only for the women, but usually also for the children who are along with the women when the women are cooking. So the indoor environmental problems from smoke are experienced locally. The deforestation is experienced locally. The CO2 problems are experienced globally. Uh, so I, I hope that answers your question to some extent. It, it helps all of us to some extent on the planet, and it helps even more the local people who are presumably going to be using less drudgery for collecting fuel wood. They are going to spend less time chopping fuel wood. They will have a better survival for their forests, and they will have less exposure to biomass smoke. Can I add something? Sure, of course. I think also on the subject of whether this is sort of a high-tech something that we're sticking in without thinking about how it's going to affect their culture, 
Uh, I, one of the things that our group does that I think really mediates against that is that we go there first and learn how they cook and learn how they're living, and we try to really adapt the stove to each specific place that we're going. And this stove it uses the same fuel as they were previously using, so in a lot of ways it's not that different. It's just more efficient. The uh, carbon forest balance seems to me like you're addressing the carbon emission part of that equation. Is there a similar effort being done to address the deforestation? Uh, yes. And from, I think from a carbon perspective, also there's, there's a lot right now at the international level discussing how to, how to do this, how to protect forests using carbon credits. And um, I don't know how much to get into this, but part of it is complicated because a lot of these projects, like I talked about, you do the baseline and then you measure what happens with the project. People can fudge with the baseline a little bit. So something that concerned people was that we had groups, Brazil was kind of a notable example that went in and said, hey, we were going to cut down this whole forest, but now we're not. So would you give us credits for this entire forest that's standing here? And it's hard to prove that baseline, to prove what would have happened in absence of the project. So there's a lot of people that are interested. We know that deforestation is a huge contributor to global warming. There's a lot of people trying to figure out how best to attack that and what the right mechanism is, policy-wise, to protect the forests. Okay, two, two questions. Rich Muller. Uh, the, the first is that, as I recall, originally for the Darfur stoves, you had intended to have them built locally, and this to become a, a, a business there. That apparently has changed now that you're having them built in Mumbai, so I'd just like you to comment on that. Uh, the second question is that early in your presentation, you mentioned that the uh, fuel save, that the fuel cost in Darfur was an astonishing $250 per year. It must be much lower in Ethiopia because uh, that cost seems to me to overwhelm. The, the, the money saved in doing that, if the cost is that high, would overwhelm all the other considerations, including the carbon credits. So, so the, what, what is the cost in Ethiopia for fuel that's saved? Uh, good questions, both. Uh, our, our intent is to push stoves production and assembly as far close to the end use point as possible. We surveyed Sudanese factories, we surveyed uh, uh, and we found that the cost to build a stove in Sudan, of course in Darfur they cannot punch out steel plates, uh, so you have got to go to do it in Khartoum and then the stove cost shot up to $65. The grade alone cost $10 in Khartoum. The great cost $2 in Mumbai. So then we went and qualified a number of nearby countries and incorporated shipping costs. And it turns out that India and China have an edge in terms of at least making the stove out of flat kits, the IKEA style flat kits, which is what is currently built in Mumbai. The stoves are not built there. So flat kits are essentially punched out on a hydraulic press uh, out of steel plates in Mumbai. And then they are shipped by surface to Port Sudan. They're taken by truck to Darfur, where in the assembly shop, uh, the refugees which have been trained on tools that we sent from Berkeley fold the flat kits into stoves and revet them with the air compressor. Uh, all of this, including dissemination and training, 
adds up to $25 per stone. Uh, if we could actually do punching of steel plates in, in uh, Khartoum at a lower cost or in, in Darfur, we should do that. We should push it as close to the end point as possible. There is also issue of scale, but, but there is enough stove demand in both places. Uh, regarding the cost of fuel, it turns out that in Ethiopia, people just chop down trees. There is, there is a fuel market, but it's based on chopping trees down and then the cost of just dragging or hauling the wood to the market without regards to the deforestation that is taking place. So the situation is very tough. Uh, the $250 that I gave you for Darfur price, that also is differentiated between North Darfur and South Darfur. In South Darfur, there are still, still some biomass within about eight hours walk from the camp. So women are still going out and exposing themselves to rape and mutilation. In North Darfur, all biomass within a day's travel has been wiped out. So now they have to rely on middlemen. And the middlemen will only take cash, so they have to sell their food rations. So there are other group of middlemen who are buying the food rations. The whole thing is a Dickinsonian nightmare. Um, an observation, then a question about the stove. Um, you talked about the carbon credits, and in the balanced system, uh, you said, well, that doesn't count. It still seems to me it should count. If you're reducing carbon emissions, if you took, took your stove into those places where it's a balanced system with people burn, cooking in the forest, so what? If you can bring your stove in and reduce carbon emissions, anywhere on the planet we do that, it's good for all. Um, so that's uh, an inappropriate uh, uh, aspect of the carbon Not at all. I, I actually totally agree with you. Yeah. It, that's just not how it is in carbon policy. Yeah, but I, I know. You know, clearly, if you reduce those emissions, if what you're doing, even if those emissions would be reabsorbed, if you're strengthening the sink, you know, then you're actually leading to more absorption of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. So there should be a mechanism to get credit for that as well. Yeah. Currently, there's not. Yeah, exactly. And then I just had a question about the stove. You mentioned the, the one test where you uh, did not beat out the competitors, as it were, and that's for this boiling test. Well, you're working on some modifications to improve the results for that boiling test. Um, I think... Let me, let me start by saying that I think the water boiling test is useful for several things. But I would say that explaining where its usefulness ends is becoming a hobby of mine. <laughs> there is a trade-off with any stove that one can make over for efficiency versus cook time. You can always stoke the fire more you know, at the cost of efficiency and get things hotter. That's a trade-off that you know, the women in Ethiopia and the women in Darfur are making several times a day based on their resources and their priorities. Unfortunately, the protocol for the water boiling test says something akin to tend the fire as would a local, um, which is open to some interpretation. So I think there is some room for us to have tended the fire more aggressively cut down our time and cut down our efficiency as well. I think the real test will be when these stoves and the others are in the homes of these women and we see how they choose to prioritize time versus efficiency and we get the results from efficiencies coming out of their decisions. That's good. 
Uh, Inder, I have a quick question. Um, I understand that because you guys wanted to be culturally sensitive, fuel was not probably not looked, but a lot of efficiency can be got from the stove if you can change the fuel which is going in as well. Uh, and is that a future project? What are the considerations uh, around that? You're absolutely right, Inder. If we were to move away from solid fuel, solid fuels are messy and it's hard to attain high, high efficiency with solid fuels. If we were to move to kerosene, for example, uh, it is straightforward to get 45-50% efficiency. Okay? Uh, in fact, there's a nice editorial from Kirk Smith in one of the old issues of science, which says that if we were to switch all of these 2 billion people from fieldwood to kerosene, uh, the, the amount of health gains and amount of CO2 emissions reduction would be equivalent to raising our uh, car mileage by a couple of miles per gallon. So certainly some trade-off like that is feasible, but that requires a supply chain of kerosene to these people and so on, which is currently at least uh, seems quite challenging. Uh, the project that we are working on could be operated on an incremental basis, but to provide kerosene to these bottom two billion people is an enterprise that is that requires more aggressive centralized intervention. It's a good point. Okay, we're going to take two more questions. One here first. Hi. First of all, I want to actually thank you and applaud you for the efforts that you've made with the stove and the efforts you're making around the globe. My question is, Is has there been consideration as to what, whether it be points or carbon footprint that uh, with the cost of stamping, creating the steel, stamping the steel, the machinery used for that, and what impact that has versus what the savings are. Have there been studies on that? And if so, can you share those numbers? Sure. Thank uh, you. We haven't done a study specific to this stove in terms of the cost of transport, the, the fuel, uh, and the steel, and the fuel for making the steel, all of which is embedded in the stove, the body of the stove has some embedded energy in it. But the standard wisdom from looking at input-output analysis of, of material products is about 10% of the market price of these products is the embedded value of energy that is in there. So a $25 stove would have, using round numbers, maybe $2.5 worth of embedded energy, embedded modern energy in it. So that's that's... So I just have a question about um, <clears throat> microfinance. So the, the biggest hurdle to overcome in implementing these uh, development pro efforts is um, the question of finance. So can you elaborate on how carbon credits could cut the costs of these efforts? Um, though the costs are, you know, $25 per stove, you're talking about people who are living under a dollar a day. Yes. Um, so how can these efforts and carbon credits be used also as a microfinance mechanism, if so? Good question. So, um, yeah, that is really why a lot of cookstove people are excited about carbon credits, is just this very opportunity to do that. And um, it can work in a lot of different ways, but for example, with our Ethiopia project, what happened is <clears throat> there was an investor up front that said, I'll front the costs of producing the stoves and I'll subsidize the price of the stoves 
myself with my own money, and then in return, I'll get a certain portion of the carbon credits at the end that 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 investor can then sell on the market. So it becomes an investment opportunity. And so in that way, that upfront cost for the organization is covered, because that's a big set of costs also, and the cost of the stove is subsidized. And then the way it works is that when a person receives the stove, they sign over their carbon right to the stove. And so in return for the subsidized price, they give up their own right to the carbon credits produced by the stove. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. So effectively, you uh, because carbon credit trade has a lot of overhead, an individual like a small uh, family back in Ethiopia is, 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 is out of the question for them to sell their carbon credit to anybody. So what has happened is aggregators have therefore emerged who then aggregate carbon credits from say 100,000 families or several thousand families and thus they are able to uh, then spread the cost of trading in carbon because they're aggregators. So the, the way this is planned to operate or envisaged to operate is World Vision will be the aggregator. The, if the investor in Europe who, has, who is in discussions with World Vision makes a killing, which I hope he does, uh, then a lot more money will be available to scale this up. If this investor loses his shirt, then this is a dead end, right? So in some sense, there is something in it for everybody uh, if this successfully goes forward. The investor from uh, Europe is still in discussions with World Vision. He was supposed to give a million dollars to them, uh, but the discussions are ongoing, so World Vision is fronting the cost themselves for now. Uh, Lawrence Berkeley Lab had asked World Vision that if we make our stove design available to you in all this scheme where everybody else is winning, how about giving 1% of the carbon credits to the Lawrence Berkeley Lab? It would be really cool. But that hasn't come through yet either. But I mean, the idea has Okay, on that note. (laughs) Thank you, Ashok, Keja, and Adam. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.